You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Thank you, everyone, uh, for coming on this nice rainy day, and um, for everyone that's helped to facilitate this visit here. Uh, Scott Radnitz, who reached out to me originally, Donna for including me into this wonderful Global Monday series that you have, and Marianne for arranging everything um, for my flight to my hotel, uh, and, and it, was, it was quite the effort to, <laughs> to get it all together. So thank you all very much. It's been really nice to be asked to come and to talk about my book again because it's been two years since it's been out. I've moved on to some other projects and it's always really nice to revisit it. I did actually have to re-pick it up and read the book to remember what I had written about um, because I have, I have also you know, been doing a lot of different things since then. Um, the book itself is the culmination of about eight years of research on human trafficking in Russia and in particular into the ways that law enforcement has handled uh, cases of human trafficking, which in Russia I generally define to mean sex trafficking, labor trafficking, and child trafficking for illegal adoption. Um, and the whole project itself was really motivated by this question of knowing that there is so much trafficking in Russia, why hasn't law enforcement been able to do more? And to answer that question, which many people at first were like, well, it's obvious the police are just corrupt, so they're not going to do it. Um, yes, kind of. Uh, but there's actually a much more, um, a much larger, broader answer to that. And so to move to answering that question really requires us to move beyond these kinds of stereotypes of Russian law enforcement, that they're corrupt, they're lazy, they're indifferent. Um, other types of stereotypes that we hear about Russia and trafficking, that there's no political will to combat the problem. Um, and more generally about trafficking, it's really a difficult crime to find. It's very hard to uncover. Um, and so being a hidden type of crime, of course Russian law enforcement can't do more. So I think those all play some role in explaining where Russian law enforcement has, has come and how it has tried to deal with this problem. But my research suggests that there's other and potentially more important, at least in my mind, um, factors for explaining Russian law enforcement's response to these anti-trafficking laws. So today in the presentation, I'd really like to talk about three of these. Um, let's see, do I have this? Yes, okay. <laughs> the first is the confusing formal criteria of the law. The second is the prevalent informal criteria and stereotypes about what real trafficking looks like, and I use that in air quotes, or what a real trafficking victim might present themselves as. And finally, and this is particularly specific to Russia, the set of institutional incentives that law enforcement faces when they are doing their day-to-day -day work. So the first two parts of this really are very trafficking-oriented, so thinking about trafficking as a crime and as a phenomenon. The last one is very Russia-oriented, and so I'm going to talk about all of these um, in turn. And I'm going to try to keep it to about half an hour so that we have plenty of time for questions um, from everyone here. Uh, it's always really hard to take an entire book and just squish it into a small talk. So I'm, I've left out a lot, but I hope that you'll, you'll be able to get 
your questions answered um, in the Q&A. So just a little bit of background uh, to begin with. Russia is obligated under, the, under international law and has signed the Palermo Protocol, the protocol to prevent, suppress, and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children. It's actually one of the first signatories in the year 2000. This international law went into force in 2003, which then obligated Russia to actually fulfill its obligations under that, um, that treaty. So in 2003, Russia passed laws criminalizing human trafficking. And there are two criminal code articles that were added to the existing criminal code that were one, the first one is called human trafficking, and it's very broad in terms of the kinds of trafficking it covers. The second one is the use of slave labor, which is a little bit more narrow. So it focuses primarily on forced labor situations. The Russian law was pushed not only by international organizations and international actors, including the US, but also by domestic organizations and domestic actors, including the police, which is something we don't hear as much about in the narrative of how Russia got this law. Um, and at the same time that it added these new criminal code articles, it also changed existing law on recruitment into prostitution and organizing prostitution. Um, and I still to this day do not know if this was intentional or just a, a good side effect, but these laws actually then became easier to use in terms of prosecuting human trafficking. Um, the law was then amended in 2008 to clear up some confusion um, and has largely remained the same since then. So just to give you a sense of where I'm drawing all of the information from, um, the main body of the research was done in 2007-2008 in a year in Russia. I was based in Moscow but traveled throughout the country. Um, I spent a month in the Far East in Vladivostok and Khabarovsk. Um, and I did follow up interviews in multiple years all the way through the time that the book was published. So I was back in 2009, 2012, 2014. Um, and the interviews that I did were with a variety of specialists in law enforcement and outside of law enforcement. And in addition to that, and as I wrote in my book, largely because I thought that I was never going to get any of these interviews to be successful, um, I started putting together a database of human trafficking cases, which turned out, it was my plan B, but when my plan A actually ended up working out, uh, plan B actually became a very helpful and really interesting look at the way that trafficking worked around Russia. And so I hand-coded about 5,200 Russian newspaper articles about human trafficking cases to follow them through the criminal justice system. I also collected about 100 plus case documents, ranging from appeal documents to sentencing documents to entire case files um, when they were available. And the, the Research itself spans the first 10 years of the human trafficking law. So the end of my, my book like chunk of time is 2013, so 10 years after the laws were passed. So um, what does this situation look like in Russia? So the kinds of cases that are being charged as trafficking um, are three basic types. The, the organ trafficking cases were both stopped before any organs were removed, so they're there and that was the intention of the trafficking, but it didn't actually get, nothing followed through. 
Um, sex trafficking is split into domestic and international trafficking. So international is anything where anybody crosses borders, either out of Russia or into Russia. Um, labor trafficking, same thing, either uh, domestic where Russian citizens are exploited or people who are already in Russia are exploited, maybe not Russian citizens, um, and international, those that cross borders. Child trafficking is primarily for illegal adoption. I took any kind of child trafficking where people were under 18 and were being trafficked for prostitution and put those in the, the sex trafficking category. Um, it's worth noting that these are my numbers. These are not law enforcement numbers. And they might not represent exactly how prevalent everything is, but I think they give a pretty good sense of what the division of types of trafficking are over this time. Obviously, at least the kinds of numbers that international organizations put forward are much, much, much larger. Um, and so the, the group of cases um, that could have been uh, caught by law enforcement is a much larger group of cases. There's also no guarantee that anything that was opened as a trafficking case will actually progress through the system and be finished as a trafficking case, um, or that the, the, the traffickers themselves will be convicted of human trafficking. Law enforcement data, though I did gather as much as I could, is actually really not helpful for understanding exactly what goes on in the process. And so while I have a bunch of law enforcement data, and it mostly tracks with what I, what I found by doing these media analyses, I actually think my data set is a much richer source of information. Um, in addition to that, law enforcement is very hesitant to share its data. So I have uh, like bits and pieces here and there uh, over these various years. So um, I want to move towards talking about these three aspects of of why law enforcement has had such a difficult time. And I'll start with talking about the formal criteria of the law. Um, this looks insane. It is kind of insane. And it'll give you a sense of why law enforcement is like, oh my god, we're not doing this. Um, this is the law on trafficking. So if you follow across the top, there are two ways to have a trafficking case in Russian law. The first is the buying and selling. So that stands alone. Um, and if that, that's the buying and selling of a, a whole person, not services of a person, like in prostitution or labor. Um, and the other way is to have any of the following activities, recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, receipt, that result in exploitation. Um, as you can see, though, the problem is that where you encounter the process of trafficking really matters for what kind of crime you see. Listed below that top row are all of the different criminal code articles that might be applicable to those particular moments in a trafficking situation. And as you can see here with this little legend, um, they're all investigated by different agencies. And so what we end up with happening is um, a very complicated situation that really is very dependent on the moment that a law enforcement agent interacts with the trafficking process. They really would have to step back and see, oh, is there more going on to figure out if it was trafficking rather than one of these individual crimes that is a component part of trafficking. So just to give you an example, if a labor inspector is called to a construction site, where there is suspicious activity um, of forced labor, workers not being paid, 
um, these kinds of, and that labor inspector actually finds something that looks like forced labor, that labor inspector could do nothing with regard to the criminal code. He or she would have to involve two additional agencies. They'd have to call what used to be the Migration Service, which has now been merged with the police, but during this whole time was the Migration Service. And they'd have to call the police. So the Migration Service would deal with the fact that these workers were maybe undocumented, and the police would deal with the fact that there was actually a crime. So for the labor inspector, it's much easier to just write up the fine for the labor violations and go on his or her merry way. In addition, a lot of these crimes actually implicate the victims of trafficking. For example, illegal border crossing is something that is done by potentially a victim, and organizing illegal migration would be done by the trafficker. And so there's that potential problem as well. The only part of this trafficking law that is not confusing to law enforcement is that first box up there, buying and selling. It's really clear. Money changes hands, a person changes hands, and that is a crime. And so for law enforcement, that's really become the focus. It is almost all of the domestic sex trafficking cases that I found in my database were a direct purchase and sale. Almost all the child trafficking for illegal adoption was a direct purchase and sale. And it's very, you know, much like a lot, rather than being a process, buying and selling is a moment in time. And that's a lot easier for law enforcement to deal with and to capture and to find evidence of than a lot of these other things which are sort of in this nebulous process which you really don't know that it's happening often until it's finished and the exploitation is taking place. It's very hard to stop somebody in the transportation or transfer stage. There's a lot of ways you can lie to, to say that you're not doing this for any exploitative purpose. You're just accompanying this person. This person is traveling on their own. They may have an incentive to lie to cross the border, um, et cetera. So this is the formal criteria of the law. And these are the things that are very, this is very confusing to law enforcement, with the exception of that buying and selling. In the absence of clarity in a law, and any of you who've ever done any work with law enforcement know, informal criteria seep right in. And so informal criteria become a really important way of trying to determine whether or not this should count. So this is all very vague. Let's figure out what a real trafficking situation looks like, a real trafficking victim looks like, and then we can make our, make our move. And so, Things that law enforcement tends to start looking at when the criteria of the formal law is vague are things like agency. Did this person agree to be working in the sex industry? Did this person agree to cross the border to work in a factory and were then exploited? Were they willing? Those kinds of things often filter people out. If they were willing or they agreed, then there's potentially no violation in the mind of a law enforcement agent. Did they receive any money for their services? Traffickers have gotten wise to this, and so they'll pay a little bit, nothing like uh, you know, the, whatever people agreed to, nothing even close to a living wage, but a little bit here and there so that people will, law enforcement in particular, will look and say, okay, well, they were being paid. It might have been a really bad wage, but that's a labor inspector problem. That's not, that's not a trafficking crime. 
Um, and most importantly, and the biggest thing that makes a difference is, did they have the ability to escape? And I have seen so many cases in Russia that because the people weren't sort of chained or locked in a room or constantly under surveillance, that the law enforcement looked at that and said, well, they could have walked away. They could have come to the police. And so therefore, this is not, this is not a trafficking victim. This is not a trafficking situation. Um, so this is the formal and the informal criteria of the law sort of working together or really against each other to filter out real trafficking cases. But for Russian law enforcement, and I think this is actually sort of a framework that's applicable to other countries, but the idea of looking at what their institution incentivizes and disincentivizes is also really important. So the, my main explanation in the book of what's going on here is not just these sort of formal and informal criteria, but how law enforcement actually works. What are the day-to-day -day lives of law enforcement agents look like such that they may or may not feel able or willing to look at things as trafficking? So law enforcement agents are, whoops, that's too far. Uh, law enforcement agents are assessed by a very strict set of quantitative performance indicators, which largely drives them away from pursuing human trafficking cases. So in brief, and this is true of, of law enforcement agents everywhere, cases closed and the number of cases closed is really critical for law enforcement. Um, these numbers in Russia are aggregated from the most local level all the way up to the top. And so there's always pressure from the top down to clear cases in whatever way you can, as quickly as you can. They're also assessed by comparing their performance each year to their performance the previous year on all the different criminal code articles. So woe be the person who opened a trafficking case one year and then can't find one the next year or two the next year. Um, and more difficult on a day-to-day -day basis is the time limits prescribed by the criminal procedure code. Once you open a case, you have two months to close it. If you don't close it in two months, you have to ask for an extension. If you don't close it after the extension, you have to ask for another extension. You have to ask your superiors for those extensions. And so they're looking down at you and thinking, why can't this person do their job? Why can't they get this done in the correct amount of time? Um, so this kind of incentive system can really lead to a lot of negative things beyond not prosecuting trafficking cases. It can lead to falsification of statistics, manipulation of statistics, failure to register crimes that occur because once they're on the books, you have to clear them. Um, and what this tends to lead to in the Russian system more generally and also to deal with human trafficking cases is that agents prioritize particular types of cases and they have particular characteristics that they're looking for. So the first is that they're easy to clear. The second is that the charges are familiar and so they don't have to spend a lot of time thinking like, is this trafficking? Is this something else? What is this, right? The quicker you can charge, the quicker it gets out the door. The evidence collection, this is the third aspect, the evidence collection needs to be straightforward and quick. Remember, two months, two months is not a lot of time to investigate a case that is likely as complicated as trafficking. And of course, Russian law enforcement have an eye towards the end of the process. They want this case, if they're gonna open it, to be pretty certain that it's gonna lead to a conviction. 
And as you may have already guessed from looking at this, trafficking cases have zero of those criteria. They're not easy to clear. They're not easy to investigate. They're not, the law itself is not clear. The charges are not familiar. Law enforcement isn't using them that much because there aren't that many cases. Um, and so the pressures really push law enforcement away from even trying these kinds of cases. And in, the, in addition to that, if that's not enough to sort of disincentivize law enforcement, we also have a massive division of functions. So this is the criminal justice process for a human trafficking case. Um, and it's not that dissimilar for any kind of case within the, um, the Russian law enforcement system. There is up to five people who might handle a trafficking case in its process. So it's not like opened by a police officer, investigated by a detective, prosecuted. There are five different people here. So the operative agent does the initial work. They follow leads. They collect physical evidence. They take preliminary statements. But of course, no law enforcement agent operates in a vacuum. They start out with an idea of what they might be looking at and try to collect the proper evidence so that that case is going to move forward um, with that particular criminal code charge. This the process but with the operative agents is kind of overseen by a prosecutor, but it's very vague. The, pro the operative agent then passes all of that information to an investigator who compiles the case file. Russian is a civil law system, and so the, the court is largely run by case files. Um, the investigator compiles all of this, makes it look pretty so that it can be admitted as evidence, and then decides on the charges. And depending on the severity of the trafficking charge, it could go to an investigator in the police, which is the MVD, or it could go to an investigator in the investigative committee. If it's determined to be more serious in the process, it has to be transferred from the police to the investigative committee. Uh, and it can't go backwards if that evidence doesn't hold up. Um, then the prosecutor has to approve the charges. And all along, lest we think that these are independent stages, the prosecutor is always talking to everybody else because they have an incentive to clear their cases and get those through the system. So all of this works together to sort of, I mean, in total to lower the effectiveness of the criminal justice system, but also to really filter out things that are not going to lead to convictions or clearances. Um, the courtroom prosecutor, prosecutor gets the case the last. They've never seen the case. They're the person, they're the poor person that has to go before the court and argue the case with the case file in hand, so it's not totally blind. But they have a great incentive not to support a charge that they think is not going to make it through the system. And so each of these people have the power to change the charges of the person before them which if you take it all the way back to the operative agent, creates an incentive from the very, very beginning not to look for trafficking cases or not to open things that are going to require trafficking charges. So what this has meant largely is not as pessimistic as it sounds like my conclusions are actually going to be. Um, what law enforcement agents have done, they're not using this law, the trafficking law, as much as they could. But they have tried to combat trafficking in ways that align with their institutional incentives. So when they've encountered trafficking cases, and the database that I put together really made this very clear, there were 279 cases that were ch like charged as trafficking or use of slave labor. There were about that many cases that were 
trafficking by my read of the law and were not charged as those. And indeed, law enforcement tends to use the trafficking charges only in about half of the cases that they could. And that was based on my very broad reading of the law um, and my own sort of categorization schemes. In other words, they've defaulted to charging and prosecuting crimes that are component parts of the human trafficking situation. So they're prosecuting a ton of recruitment into prostitution. They're prosecuting a ton of recruitment of minors, kidnapping, illegal imprisonment. All of these things are um, component parts of the trafficking situation, but don't get at the whole process. And so because many of the stages of trafficking actually do constitute crimes in and of themselves, the law enforcement agents are not actually wrong. They're just not taking that step back to see the whole process. And I think that's important to note. It's not that they're doing something that's illegal or in, incorrect. They're doing something that aligns with their institutional incentives. Um, and you can really see this most clearly in the change over in how many cases of recruitment into prostitution and organizing prostitution were prosecuted. So this black line here represents the first year or the time that the trafficking law was passed, there was a huge jump in the number of cases the following year, which to me is indicative and based on my interviews is sort of confirmed of the fact that law enforcement were incentivized to do something about human trafficking, but they chose to do it in a way that worked for them. Um, and this huge jump was, I mean, you can see it's sort of like floating around, floating along, floating along, kaboom. And you know, this is like a 200% increase in the number of cases. And these alternative ways of prosecuting have continued till today. They have taken sort of a sharp downfall, um, in part because after you, uh, my interpretation of this is after you bust a number of prostitution rings, it takes some time for them to reform. And so there was a real sort of push for some time, and then things started to, to sort of get less, um, less intensive, but still quite intensive. So when does law, I, I mentioned that law enforcement uses the trafficking laws about half the time. When do they use them? Because that's an important question too. When do they opt in? Um, given their incentive structure that generally pushes them to opt out. So they tend to opt in, and this comes back to the question about informal criteria. They tend to opt in when the trafficking case is so clearly going to match up with everyone's interpretation of what trafficking looks like that there is going to be no question that the case will move through the system and clear at the end. Um, and that a conviction will be obtained. And so what do those cases look like? Those cases are usually totally innocent victims that are forced into prostitution. So sort of the, the stereotypical naive girl from the village. Um, victims for whom money was exchanged in a direct transaction. So this is that buying and selling moment. Victims who were chained and beaten. So victims who are in a very stereotypical notion of transatlantic slavery, um, that it registers very clearly that this is what slavery looks like in the mind of law enforcement. And any transactions, including children. So once you get down to children in Russia, it's, they're always going to pursue those cases. And in these kinds of cases, I think it's really interesting that the informal criteria are actually useful 
because they're filtering cases into law enforcement's line of vision that might not have otherwise been there. But, um, and, and I guess I do end on a pessimistic note, sorry. Um, unfortunately, I would say the more salient pressures are really for law enforcement to avoid using the trafficking charges because it just doesn't do anything good for them to have that case opened and maybe not be able to clear it. And so they'd rather, much rather do something different that works for them. So I'm going to stop there and let you guys come and get lunch, but we can do the question and answer period while you guys are eating. I certainly don't want to hold you away from the food. So thank you very much, and I really look forward to your questions and comments.